Good morning. Welcome to the Book Collector. The Lilly Library, which this year celebrates its 60th anniversary, is among America's top libraries. It was established to house the collection of Josiah K. Lilly, a man who made a fortune from pharmaceuticals and then spent much of it on buying books. The article for today's Book Collector podcast was written by David Randall, a man of particular interest to us, as it was Randall who negotiated the purchase of Ian Fleming's library upon his death. This article was published in our issue for autumn 1957 and is read here by Rupert Van Sittart. When I was invited by the book collector to write an account of the library formed by J.K. Lilly of Indianapolis and recently given by him to Indiana University at Bloomington, I realised at once that it would be impossible to convey any adequate idea of the quantity, variety, quality and importance of Mr Lilly's achievement within an upper limit of 6,000 words. Indeed, a mere listing of the more important books would overrun this limit, and few things are more boring than a list of titles, unless they're for sale. Yet one does not simply say, here is a superb library, one of the greatest ever assembled by a private collector, or that it is, beyond question, the most valuable and most extensive ever given to an American university, without documentation, and expect one's words to be taken for granted. Too many world-renowned libraries, known by reputation only, have failed to win the world's renown when placed on public exhibition. And 6,000 words would be inadequate in this case even to introduce many of the categories of book collecting in which the library's founder interested himself. These valid objections were overridden by the amiable autocrat of the editorial board with the suggestion that such an account might begin by answering the question when, why, where, how and what Mr Lilly collected. This could lead on to something about the evolution of his tastes and interest his principal sources of supply, his collecting methods, the limitations of the library, and so on. This, at the time, seemed a simple enough request. Mr Lilly's collecting began in 1926, and the first order from a rare book catalogue, which his secretary, Miss Armington, who is still with him, remembers was for a minor item of Mark Twain's from James F. Drake, Incorporated. Later he ordered, among many others from the same firm, what was then the only, and still remains the finest, presentation copy of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. So much for the when. As for the why, that remains, as always, in all collecting, elusive and generally unanswerable, and the writer of this article resolutely refuses to speculate. It suffices to say that Mr Lilly comes from the most literate state in the USA and is a born collector from a collecting family. Where he collected is, I believe, a feature unique in the formation of the few comparable American libraries, for the answer is right in his own backyard. The library contains, at the most, only a scattered handful of books he personally bought abroad or ordered from foreign catalogues. The only exception coming to mind is the fine Americana, mostly early travels, bought from Henry Stevens' son and Styles of London, But even these were bought through Rowland Tree and in America. No books, to my knowledge, were ever bought by Mr Lilly on the continent, nor in his 30 years of collecting has he ever placed a single bid, directly or indirectly, at Sotheby's or any of the other English or continental auction houses. 
and precious few at American auctions after the Kern sale. This came about, legend and book auction records state, in 1929, at a time when he was just really getting started and his enthusiasm was high. He'd been collecting along the general line of the usual American beginner of the period, the books on the Grolier and the A. Edward Newton hundred lists with, aside from his always present interest in the American scene, those English authors of the 19th and 20th centuries then so ardently sought after. Stevenson, Barry, Moore, Kipling and the poets. He missed, luckily, getting involved in the then fashionable 18th century, but his targets otherwise were conventional. But the competition was stiff. As he recalled later, there he was, a little book collector whom no one had ever heard of, from the Midwest, just trying to buy a book in the big city. He picked what he liked in the first session, bid the estimated limit, and didn't get a thing. At the second session, he increased the estimates by 50%. At the third session, he doubled them and still got nothing. And then, in what he concedes to have been a mistake, he concluded that his Midwest money was just as good as that of the Wall Street boys and took the lid off. One result is that the library now contains some very nice books from the latter part of the Kern sale. Others are that he seldom bid at auction from that time on, and when he did, even when angling for such items as the Bay Psalm book, he never gave an unlimited bid. As a collector, he may have learned the hard way, but he learned fast, and the lesson stuck. Not that the collection does not contain a great many volumes which have passed through the notable libraries dispersed at auction during the past quarter of a century, the Ashburnham Gilby set of the first five editions of Walton's Angler, all in their original bindings and including the only presentation copy known to me, comes to mind, with the Frank Hogan copy of the Caxton Chaucer, the Harmsworth Milk for Babes, or its Walpole's copy of Howard's Songs and Sonnets, 1559 from the Holford sale, among many others. He invariably knew of their forthcoming appearance at auction, and as events proved, he got them although he did not go into direct auction competition for them. He let them be bought for stock by dealers who believed in them, and then purchased them from the dealer, never begrudging any profit which seemed fair, or even handsome. This leads to the fourth question. How? The answer has been partially given through American dealers, and a lot of them. Although the majority of the major items in the collection were obtained from relatively few and well-known sources, there are few rare book specialists who have not sold to him directly, and none, I suspect, indirectly. All through his still continuing collecting career, we may add here that though his books are the apple of his eye, they are very, very far from being the alpha and omega of his collecting, he has been an extremely active member and director of one of America's largest businesses. Some system had to be evolved whereby the books he wanted came flowing into Eagle Crest Library, the Eli Lilly firm remained solvent, and he did his job. He simply could not spend the time necessary to read all catalogues, a full-time job for a professional librarian, as I am finding out, to carry out all the necessary correspondence, etc., and he has never employed a librarian. Gradually, his collecting interests, along with his professional responsibilities, increased. The lure of American and English literature along the classic lines of the late 1920s and 30s, that never exactly palled, was not enough to satisfy him, 
and he therefore became interested in the possibilities of collecting the outstanding first editions of Western European literature. In this he was stimulated, I like to think, by the pioneering catalogues which the more forward-thinking dealers such as Elkin Matthews and Scribner were issuing. His original interest, stemming from his service in France in World War I, was in 19th century French literature. This led, eventually, to a collection of firsts unique in the United States as regards original condition. Mr Lilly has always, and in all his collecting, insisted upon original condition wherever possible. And it is one of the things which make his library an accomplishment difficult to conceive without actual viewing. The proportion of rebound copies to those in original state, I'm now referring to the real rarities, is very low. And it should be added that Mr Lilly himself has never had a volume rebound. A very hearty number of books and some obvious titles are lacking, simply because they've not turned up in an acceptable condition. Mention may be made in passing, as I may seem to have disparaged the 18th century, that his Spectator, Pope's essay on criticism, Rape of the Lock and the four parts of the essay on man, as well as Gay's Beggar's Opera and Polly, are all in original state, uncut as issued. So too are Burns' Kilmarnock poems and the Scots Musical Museum, the principal 18th century quartos, etc., and when a difficult book like Maul Flanders, Pamela or Gulliver could not be obtained thus, it had to be an original calf, and in the case of Gulliver, on small paper with the first state of the portrait. This predilection for original condition carried over into the continental firsts, and here Mr Lilly's tastes remained his own. He wanted his favourite books, wherever possible, to be in their original state, wrappers uncut as issued or failing this in a harmonious contemporary binding, and would have no truck with fine bindings for their own sake. Montaigne's essay, Racines et Figinie, Cornet's Polyucht, are not uncut, though all are in original bindings. But in 19th century literature, Madame Bovary, La Peau de Chagrin, Les Trois Mousquetaires, Les Travailleurs de la Mer, L'Homme qui rit, Most of Anatole France, Baudelaire, Zola, On Through Jean-Christophe and Proust Recherche, are in their original wrappers, uncut, as are Heine's Gedichte and Buch der Lieder. Few libraries, in America or elsewhere, public or private, can boast of the first printing of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment and the Brothers Karamazov, as well as Tolstoy's War and Peace, Fine Turgenev's and other Russian novels or Pan Mikhail and Quo Vadis, and representative collections of the Scandinavian poets, philosophers, novelists and dramatists in their original languages. Having decided to extend the range of his collecting to comprehend all Western literature, the next desideratum was some sort of guidepost which would summarise, to paraphrase Matthew Arnold, the best that has been thought and printed in the world. This turned out to be a volume on his own reference shelves, Asa Don Dickinson's 1,000 Best Books. Purchases were not confined to this list by any means, but if a book which was on the list became available... It was acquired in its original language and often in its first English translation as well. The classics were also acquired in their first editions in both Greek and Latin. Once sites had been set, Mr Lilly normally enlisted the aid of some trustworthy specialist in the field and then, within limits, turned him loose. Within limits meant that books might be reported as found but would not be purchased until they had been seen by Mr Lilly 
whose exacting standards rejected a large proportion of those offered for inspection. All sections of the library would have been enlarged had these standards been relaxed. Although a strict yearly budget was adhered to, it was fortunately seldom that a book was turned down on account of its price. Business interests naturally inclined him to collect medical and scientific books, and at the start these were acquired as chance dictated. But there came a time when he decided to set about the building of a really substantial collection in these related fields, and again some guideposts were needed. None suitable for the purpose appeared to exist. To be sure, there had been plenty of writing about medical books, and there were always Garrison and Osler to consult, but there was no satisfactory list ranging from Incunabula to Fleming of the epoch-making discoveries in medicine and surgery and their first appearances in print. So, characteristically, Mr Lilly had one prepared by W.R. Lefanu, librarian of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. The same lack existed in science, and it was filled by I. Bernard Cohn, editor of ISIS. These lists will eventually be published. Similar lists were also prepared, before Lyle Wright's well-known American fiction 1774-1850 appeared in print by two American dealers, both specialists in this sphere, John S. Van E. Cohn and Howard Mott, whose subsequent sleuthing proved to be eminently successful. While booksellers were reporting on various interests, Mr. Lilly was himself actively buying through catalogues and correspondence, and on his numerous trips around the country, during which he became acquainted with many dealers. All this was done very quietly and with no publicity, not even that of lending books to exhibitions. People could come to see his treasures and be royally entertained, but once the rule of no lending to exhibitions has been made, it was not broken for anyone. As a result, the collection has been little known until recently. Indeed, many of the dealers who supplied books in one subject had no idea of his interests in other subjects. A many-sided and very experienced collector, he once remarked to me wryly that he had a distaste for those dealers who expect to learn their business at my expense. The Lilly Library was thus to acquire a distinction which sets it apart from all others of its class formed in America. There were few bulk purchases, unlike Huntington with his acquisition of the Church Library or Morgan with his purchases of entire collections. Mr Lilly has collected almost all his books individually. They give, therefore, a much clearer picture of the founder's desires, aims and accomplishments. His distaste for bulk purchases may best be illustrated by one incident. Just before 1939, he was offered what was claimed to be a complete collection of the works of Nobel Prize winners in original state and in their original languages. It presented some tricky bibliographical problems because it included off-prints from scientific journals and other unusual first appearances. Mr Lilly turned down the collection, though not the idea, with the remark... Let's not buy this, but go after them individually and have the fun of getting them ourselves. And so indeed he did, and thus secured in due course the majority of them. The only exception to this rule, aside from such local interests as the James Whitcomb Riley and the General Lew Wallace papers, were made in favour of early Americana. Although the library was already strong in New England rarities such as the Elliot Indian Bible, both editions in original bindings, the second a presentation, 
Some 20 Cambridge, Massachusetts imprints before 1700 and the like mostly purchased from Goodspeed of Boston or Dr. Rosenbach, no special attention has been paid to American beginnings, early discovery and exploration, as he felt that he had come too late into this field to gather a really distinguished collection. The lack of such material and a realisation of its importance, spurred by reading of Kenneth Roberts' historical novels, tempted him when the outstanding collection of Baron Hart was offered. Two Columbus letters, including Harris No. 1, among a choice lot of about 250 books, simply could not be turned down. He once remarked to me about his Poe collection. The first important rarity he ever purchased was the romantic copy of Tamerlane, graphically described by Charles Goodspeed in his Yankee bookseller, There is nothing like beginning at the top and working down. The article you've just heard was number 14 in our series called Contemporary Collectors, of which there are 71 in all. The easiest way to read this series is to subscribe at www.thebookcollector.co.uk and access our digital archive.